Welcome to the Intentional Growth Podcast, the show that teaches you how to grow the value of a company with an end in mind. Host Ryan Tansom interviews top business leaders, authors, entrepreneurs, and other professionals who share their experience and expertise about buying, growing, and selling companies. Thanks for tuning back in. This is episode 225, and we are going to be diving into part two of the interview with Saad Juman, who owned a nightclub in Toronto, got a gun pulled on him, got out of the nightclub business, spent 10 months meditating, got clear that he wanted to get into healthcare, started a software healthcare company, grew it up to servicing 3,000 healthcare organizations and a multinational business all with intense focus before he sold the private equity. If you have not listened to part one with Saad, go back and check out that episode because we talk a lot about his why, how he got clear on his why and the impact that he wanted to make in people's lives in the healthcare industry. The reason it's the two parts, again, is because entrepreneurs have to figure out what do they want from their business and their life long-term and why in order to be clear about how to integrate their strategic plan and the growth of their company into that big picture. Because you could be solving for growth, but growth for growth's sake does not get you necessarily faster or closer to your goals. You have to figure out what is it that the impact that you want to make on the world and in the business, and then how can you grow in order to satisfy your non-negotiables as an entrepreneur, and then you integrate that strategic plan. So in today's episode, Saad's going to be talking about all the crazy things that he did to scale policy medical to make it not only worth a lot of money, eventually sell to private equity, but how he kept his true north in focus the entire time. There was lots of bumps and bruises. He talks about how they almost went bankrupt and they had to double down and pivot the business and why he was able to do that, keeping his big entrepreneurial why in focus. So some of the brass tacks, things that we're going to be getting into is how in that complacent spot he was in with the business, he took his initiative to go interview his customers and really understand what they wanted from Policy Medical and why. Saad talks about the jobs to be done philosophy and how that helped guide him to really identify what service offering he should have long-term. Saad talks about his content creation, how he integrated his customers into his educational content marketing, how he created a certification plan, used that momentum as an upward spiral to scale his company into 3,000 healthcare organizations, and why finding mentors for him was one of the key parts of being able to keep his true north, integrate the operational strategies to help him accelerate his goals into a more valuable business with the end in mind. He talks about how he spent two to three years prepping the business to build value, to create as many choices as he possibly could have. He discusses how he created his two to three non-negotiables in an exit because of how clear he was from that 10-month meditation solid journey in solitude and how he was able to use that in the process of selecting the different buyers. Saad is an amazing example of how important it is to identify who you are, what do you want from the business and why, and how amazing that can be as a guide to help you focus on the right things in the business, develop your strategic plan, and then go get it because you have the passion and energy to chase something that you've identified as important. I have one announcement before I kick it into the interview, and that's that Arcona is searching for 
CFOs that want to come on board, join our team, and become a fractional CFO to our clients who are business owners that have gone through the intentional growth course, whether that's online and with coaching or virtual cohorts or the boot camp, they become educated on how to grow the value of the business with an end in mind using the five principles, and then they need help. They want to integrate their strategies into the financials so they can project out the value of their business. So if you know a CFO that would be a great fit for the Arcona team and wants to help business owners grow the value of their business with the end in mind, shoot them this podcast. There's the links to our CFO job posting page where Pat and I have a bunch of videos rallying around what the CFOs do for our clients, why they should join our team, and why it would be fun to join us versus other people. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy this interview with Saad Juman. Sponsored by Arcona's Intentional Growth Digital Course. Ryan Tansom and Pat Hobby show you how to shift your mindset away from solving for annual income to focusing on strategies that create long-term value, giving you the freedom and choices to take control of the future destiny of your business. Accelerate your knowledge with 36 videos and dozens of exercises that combine decades of experience buying, growing, and selling companies. Learn more by going to arcona.io or visiting the show notes. Good morning, Saad. How are you? Good morning. I am well. I'm well. Thanks for having me back again. Excited, excited, excited is an understatement for us to continue our journey of the conversation. Since we have recorded the last episode, we uh, uh, there's a lot of stuff in the country going on. And um, we'll, we're going to dive into the world that we can control, which is our businesses and our lives. And we were just chatting about parenting. And uh, we're going to be talking about growing and scaling and selling businesses. And I, I swear, Saad, Sometimes I think parenting is harder. <laughs> and so there's a yep. there's more yeah. assets there's, are more precious. Yeah, exactly. And you know, when you're when you're talking about a business, there's very tactical binary things that you can do and you know exactly what the rules of the game are. <laughs> um yes. so I digress. Um, you know, you and I had such a great conversation last week, and I love the fact that you gave so much color behind your why and how you got clear. So, I mean, like you and I had chatted so few times, people understand why they're doing what they're doing. And I just did my intro and my show notes for that episode. And you had said something that said, we need to take the time to listen and not consume. So maybe we can kind of pick it up right there. Because, you know, you were talking about how you were uh, really taking time over the 10 months to get clear on um, where you wanted to go. You started talking about healthcare, but kind of just pick up where you left off as you had listened, you know, what was the driving fire that you identified of as your why? And then how did you get into healthcare? Maybe kind of start talking about the the tactical things in the business of how you started it and where you started going. Yeah. So, I mean, leaving or within that time of solitude, the driving why became health to impact people's health. It wasn't yet healthcare necessarily. It was how can you make a positive impact on people's health and their overall happiness? And, and and some of that, maybe it came from a place of some sort of intuitive voice within me. And also maybe it came from a place of maybe like remorse and wanting to make up for some of the bad decisions I felt that I had made before to make some kind of recompense. So, I mean, combination of both probably, 
but health and impacting people's health and happiness was really a singular message in that time of solitude. And it became a singular focus once I left that time of solitude. Now, the time of solitude has continued as a tool for me throughout my entire journey from that point forward, just not 10 months at a time. I mean, it would be, you know, it would be a few minutes at a time each day or, or something like that, just a time for me to quiet down and, 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 and kind of hear myself. But when I walked out of that time, I kind of walked out with eyes wide open, ears wide open, looking for opportunities within the realm of, of health. I didn't just want to jump into having a job somewhere randomly just to, just to pay bills. So where did the opportunity to start your business come from? And then what was kind of the seed of inception? And then how did you take that and then run with it? Yeah, great, great question. So I got a call one day from, from a university friend of mine. We were in the same fraternity together and all this type of stuff. And he had become a recruiter. So he said, hey, you know what? There's a job. Because he knew I, I, was, I didn't have a job at that point. <laughs> so he said, there's a job that came up at a, at a technology company. I said, oh, okay. Um, and he said, it's a healthcare technology company. So he didn't know anything about my, my driving mission inside of me, right? He just called about an opportunity. So I said, healthcare, huh? He said, he said yep. I said, what are, like, what's the position for? He said, to, to be part of the sales team. I said, yeah, I'll, I'll, um, I'll go for the interview. And, and it was, a, it was a, it was a weird interview at this company. Cause I walked in and I thought it was an interview, but at the end of the hour, they said, okay, so do you want to start now? And oh, I said, wow. oh, okay. So I just, I just started at that company and the company, it was still within that heyday of tech companies starting, uh, off of just really random ideas. Um, And this particular company, what they were doing was they were building intranet solutions for hospitals. So that was, and it was, it was a place where, and that's, that's what we're, we're supposed to sell, right? So we would sell this intranet solution and the hospital would in theory buy it and they would post, you know, the cafeteria menu or whatever else might, might be on there. Now I was not very successful at selling that solution. Um, In fact, whenever I would and, and I was, you know, I had a background also already just for context in tech and software sales, because uh, one of my older brothers had an inside sales lead generation type company uh, for, for tech companies. So part of my experience over the years had been working within my brother's company, learning how to sell technology. So it's something I knew really well. But one thing kept on happening every time I would get close to selling to, to actually selling their, their particular product. The prospect would say, you know what? I don't really need that solution. I need something that does X. I said, oh, okay. And I kept on hearing that idea over and over again. So I just wrote it down. And then I went to the head of engineering and I told him, I said, you know, whenever we do luck out and sell something, um, what's the feedback you're getting? from the customers because this company at that time they didn't have customer support client success anything it mm-hmm. was your sales team and then your engineering team your engineering team dealt, dealt with the customers oh boy so he said <laughs> you know what the yeah so he said, he said you know it's interesting the customers are really frustrated i said why he said because they're trying to get this intranet solution to do something else i said what's the something else and he told me i said i said that's the same thing i'm hearing on the phone so I literally I went home and then I came back the next day 
And I went to him, his name was Josh. And I said, Josh, let's take this idea to the CEO of this company and tell them, because I just thought of things very simply. I was like, let's tell them to stop making the intranet solution and start making the policy and procedure management solution, because that's what the prospects were asking for. They were saying, hey, can you build something that manages this really obscure document within the hospital uh, that's being done in a manual way? Um, so I actually did that. I took the idea to the leadership. They were not interested in that idea. Uh, they were. It was a type of company at that time, and there were many like this, where their actual business was raising more rounds of funding from their investors. Right. That, that was the that was the actual business. It wasn't about the product. So what? So I I saw that pretty clearly, and I took Josh out for lunch that day at a you know at a food court at a mall. Uh, we're at a subway and we're eating subs. And um, I said, I got an idea. I said, let's quit and start our own company. And he said, quit. He goes, I don't even know how to quit. And I said, I said, we just have to resign. He goes, I've never done a resignation letter before. I said, don't worry about it. Tomorrow I'm going to come to work and I'm going to have both of our resignation letters prepared. And that's <laughs> I what happened. You quit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We, we showed up. I showed up the next day and we both quit. I remember walking out. It's Canada. It's cold, right? And he turned to me and he's like, he said, "Where, where are we going to work?" Because at that time, you know, co-working spaces, you know, WeWorks, like all this type of stuff, co-location space, they they weren't around, right? It's like if you have a business, you need an office. So I told him, you know, and something I've told people before. I told him, I said, I have an office space. It's twenty-four by seven access. There's a caterer. There's a gym. There's everything. And he said, where, where's this place? I said, my mom's basement in Scarborough. I said, she's the caterer. She's going to cook for us. There's a couch down there in the basement. You can sleep. I said, I got my old weight bench. We can lift weights. And that's, that's what, that's how it started. That's awesome. I, I, it's such a good, it's back to the roots, right? So when you're, yeah. when you guys were having the conversations about, you know, solving the client's problems and then you know and then you you guys went on some crazy growth uh spurts and you know i maybe i'll so i'll give you kind of the the wrapper and the theme that i think is so important for the listeners is that so many times people like there's kind of a couple different scenarios where one is that they're not clear on their why what who they are what they want from their business and why so then decisions come, you know, throughout their journey as you know, running the business and owning the business. And they don't know how to weigh that, that, that choice against what they want, because they don't know what they want. So then they end up, you know, doing something and then regretting it. And or they're, they're so focused on the business as the operations, they don't necessarily know the impact. So it's kind of all these different components of like, you need to build a very valuable business to give you the most amount of choices, but you also need to be very clear. And you did some very very um, interesting things as you uh, 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 did the presentation to Rodium about what you did with the business. So as you're telling your story, I just want to, you know, if you could keep in mind of how the tactical value growth things that you did are helping you accomplish your bigger impact and how, you know, I don't know if along your journey, Saad, that there was challenges where those weren't in, in line with each other and what you did to rebalance those. I mean, I think it's, does that make sense? Because I think it's just something that's a lot of people... Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so let me maybe let, let me proceed in this way then, and th- and thanks and thanks to the rapper because that that puts my the next comments in I guess in context. So, I would say 
the one thing we did really, really well from the beginning, and it wasn't, we didn't read a book about this or we didn't, it just, we just intuitively did it because we felt like that was the thing to do. It was listening to the customer. And I think years later, I, to be honest, it's just over the past couple of years that I've come across uh, Clayton Christensen's theory of jobs oh, to be done. Uh, Bob, Me- uh, Mes- right? Bob, uh, how do you pronounce his last name? Uh, Mesta? Mesta? Have you heard of him? The, the yeah. one thing? Yeah, Bob's been on the show. Oh my God, that was like three, four years ago. I probably, I don't even know if I knew what I was talking about back then, <laughs> yeah, but it's a great concept. Isn't it? <laughs> it, it, is, it is a great concept. And when, when I read that book and I read that theory, I thought to myself, I said, oh, thank God. Like we were doing most of this intuitively from, the, from day one for, for, for Policy Medical, for the company that I had. Now, if I read that, if I knew about the whole theory, I, you know, I could have probably incorporated uh, more of it, but really what we did was we listened to the customer in terms of what their problem was, what their pain is, and we were singularly focused on always being able to provide a solution to the customers. It wasn't, it wasn't trying to provide a solution and then try to find people that would buy it. We identified the customers. We said, okay, these are the customers, right? The customers are hospitals. The customers are within the hospitals. They are within the regulatory compliance and healthcare quality departments. Now, the the current pain that they seem to have is this. However, if or when the pain changes, we'll continue to pivot and modify ourselves to solve their pain for that particular customer. I find a lot of companies, they start building an, an idea or a product or a service and they get really, really attached to the product or service. And then it becomes an exercise of what customers can we find that'll pay us money for this because we've already built it, as opposed to how can we continue to be of deeper and deeper service to these specific customers with whatever they need? It's interesting. So that's, well, that, no, that's what we did. That's awesome. And, and, I, and I'm, I'm excited to hear as you use the business to continue to change. You know, so one of the things that I see is people lose sight of what you just described, especially if they all of a sudden get focused on, you know, solving for their distributions, or if they get bought out by an investor, like a private equity firm or whoever it might be, it becomes solving for the money instead of solving for the customer's needs. So like, you know, as you continue sharing your journey, you know, how, keeping in balance your passion, your passion and your why, along with the customer's problems, as well as building a valuable business that has profit that can satisfy both those, um, the customer's why and your why. I just find it so difficult for people to hold all those in balance together and continuing to make those changes and evolutions to make sure that they're in balance. Yeah. You know, one of the one of the greatest things that helps to take you off this track, though, is it, it could be being bought out, it could be investment, but it's also a little bit of success because when then when you start getting a little bit of success in the form of sales or, or whatever else, you could easily become complacent, lazy, and lose sight of what the customer really really needs. And and to be honest, I mean, my story is not all positives. I mean, we became complacent. We became just like that, right? Years went by 
Uh, probably, you know, five, six years went by. We're selling, right? And again, we're still a two-man company at that point. And, you know, for us, it's great. Two guys in a basement selling software licenses, right? And, you know, and, and we moved past, you know, those early war stories of, uh, you know, and one of them, as I remember, you know, we, we didn't have any money, so we couldn't afford to fly anywhere, to be honest with you. So, and the Canadian market wasn't a market for us. It was quickly evident that the U.S. market was the market for us. So all of our, being in Toronto, in Ontario, all of our outbound sales effort was in upstate New York. Our first customer was in a place called Plattsburgh, New York. But then our second customer was in Franklin, Tennessee, just outside of Nashville. So that was a long drive from Toronto to Nashville <laughs> and then back, right? As, especially when you can't afford a hotel room. So, but, but, you know, after, after that stuff, you know, we started selling more and more and it was just two guys, but then we became complacent and lazy and stopped innovating the product. And really we stopped listening to our customers. Right. And that actually, that could have been the end of the company uh, had we not done some things differently. So a couple of questions on the, on the business. So what, at that point, what was the actual product offering? And then how did you, what triggered you to get uncomplacent? That's if that's even a word, (laughs) but um, (laughs) is uh, like, you know, so what, what did the product become? And, And then as you were complacent, what did you do to get out of that uh, rut? And then how did you think about the business and delivering the, the needs to the customer while creating, like, I mean, what you guys did with your, with your tech uh, and your offering from what you had described in the roading was very unique, especially at the time. Um, so I'm just trying to think about like how, yeah, if you kind of get shed some light on a couple of those, a uh, couple of those milestones. Yeah. Yeah. So, so the product itself, there was one product at that point. And it was called Policy Manager. Uh, And Policy Manager, what it did was exactly what the name says. It managed the hospital's policies and procedures. And and really the main driver for us was simply in the United States, hospitals have the option to sign up with what is called accreditation agencies. If they sign up with an accreditation agency, they are now on the hook for an annual unannounced inspection by this agency. Um, Now, this agency has the power to shut the hospital down, to find them, to do whatever. And you might ask yourself, why would a hospital sign up for this? Uh, Because if they sign up for it and they attain a higher level of certification and healthcare quality for the hospital, they get a higher amount of Medicare and Medicaid reimbursement from from the government. So so that's, that's why over 75% of the hospitals in the United States sign up for these, these agencies. Mm-hmm. So that's what, the, that's what the product did, is it managed the policies because the policies are derived from the documentation called standards that the accreditation, and the accreditation agencies put out. So, so, but it was, you know, back then, it, there was a technology called, Mac, uh, called Cold Fusion. It was owned by Macromedia. And it was uh, it was a simple tool to code in. It was fast, and Josh was the coder. I was everything else, and everything was on premise. Meaning that when we sold a software license to a hospital, 
we physically had to go to the hospital wherever they were. And I would spend the day training the staff in, a, in some boardroom somewhere. And Josh would be in a server room with a parka on because it's air conditioned with a bunch of CDs installing the software there. And that's, 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 that's what it was. I'm mentioning all of this because what I'll share next with the reinvention of the company, um, I'll come back to some things that almost killed us uh, along the way. But, uh, but to answer your question, what forced us to change was when I say, I wouldn't say us, but what forced the company to change? Because whenever I look at a company, even if it's my own, I look at it as a different person separate from me. Yeah. So what, what forced the company to change was the business divorce. So Josh and I decided to part ways uh, because we saw the vision for the company differently. Um, and it wasn't, it wasn't that one of us was right or wrong or good or bad. It was just different. Um, you know, he, he was quite happy keeping a small amount of clients that him and I could take care of. And it's keeping that going just to provide for him and I, and I wanted a high growth, high impact, highly scalable company. So, so we ended up parting ways. I, I bought him out after about, you know, quite a few years in business. It was 2000 and 2009, 2010, around there, right? Also, you know, we were also still trying to survive at that point because of the 2008 economic downturn as well that the U.S. was going through. So, so all, all of that was happening. Like there was a bit of trauma to the organism of the business, meaning partnership breakup, some bad economic times, things were kind of at a low point. And then I found myself in an office with 100% of the company with a complacent product. And I had to ask myself, what do I, what am I going to do? And the main question I asked myself is, do I still want to do this? So this is a, it's a, that's a great example of how did you listen again? So, you know, you're going back, I don't know how you took what you learned over those 10 months, the skill sets of being able to listen. So now, you know, if you think about what we had said earlier of, okay, you got this listening to the customer. So now you've got these compliance managers at hospitals, and then you've got your big passion about helping or, you know, wanting to make an impact in people's happiness and health. And then also you've got a cash flow, uh, a cash flowing business. How did you... What, what process did you go through to realign the, the delivery of the, of the company and those visions of your making an impact in people's lives? Yeah, two, two things I use. One, I went back inside myself through different forms of meditation, I would say. You know, I, I, I learned and I, I honed and, uh, a specific type of meditation over, over the years of the business that I relied on and still rely on to kind of go inwards. And then also, you know, I have a lot of people come to me actually because they know I'm into meditation. They ask me, you know, what's a great form of meditation? And I always tell them, I said, whatever it is that you did around 12 years old, that was really, that brought a lot of joy to you and allows you to lose track of time. For some people that could be, I don't know, playing like retro Super Mario Brothers. For me, it's shooting hoops on my driveway. So I went, I went inside to kind of see what it is I wanted to do. And I reconnected with that idea, that, that vision of impacting people's health 
that I uncovered in the original time of solitude. The other thing I did was I started to seek mentorship. And I, I encountered a friend at a, at a casual personal barbecue, and he had just exited uh, his company through, through a great exit. And I, we were chatting and I asked him, I'm like, what was, you know, what was the biggest thing that made an impact for you in your, in this journey? And, and I said, don't tell me the regular stuff that everyone talks about. Tell me something I don't know. So he paused and he said, mentorship. So we chatted that evening about his mentorship story. And, and he shared with me what seemed like a formula. And then we came up with this kind of formula for finding mentors. And the formula was to go and find two mentors. One mentor would be an industry-specific mentor. And that industry-specific mentor, for me, in my case, I wanted somebody within healthcare, technology, specifically hospitals, that was in the healthcare quality world. And I also wanted somebody that had built a business of a certain size, which so, so knowing that, that narrowed my list down just to a few people. And I was willing to have that person anywhere in North America because I'd be willing to hop on a plane and fly to them if I had to. Mm-hmm. The, other, the other mentor I was looking for was a general business mentor that shared a lot of the same personal characteristics and virtues that I, I, I hold dear to myself. And I wanted that person locally within my city, in my case, Toronto. And I wanted somebody that was running a business at a much, much higher level than the industry-specific mentor. Um, and there's a bunch of reasons for these, these types of things, these types of criteria. But though, that, was my, that was my approach. And you know, employing some uh, Napoleon Hill, think and grow rich affirmation type stuff, I became singularly focused on trying to find these mentors. And within a few months, I found my mentors. And though they had um, a huge impact in helping me turn the business around and create like a five to six step process of restarting the company uh, because the company needed to essentially be restarted all over again in every single manner um, to take it from what was teetering on virtual bankruptcy to the exit we ended up having. So I want to unpack that part of the journey too. So What were the outcomes after going through that process? Maybe kind of shed some light on that process of reinventing the business. Because, you know, I I think when people listen to this show, so, you know, they're anywhere in that journey. And then, you know, even if they're on their way, taking a step back, listening to what they should be doing and why, and then, you know, even going, you know, kind of assessing this process, but how did you, like, what was the outcome? So what were the process, what was those, what were those steps? And then, what did you end up doing with the business? And then we can kind of get through to the exit. I, I know we've only got, you know, 20 to 30 minutes here, but um, just kind of curious on how you want to go about this, because I think it's important because most people haven't gone through this stuff intentionally, which is the whole point of the, <laughs> the name of the show. Yeah, no, I think, I think we have, we, we have more than enough time to, to actually go through this. So, so first of all, like I really want to, you know, highlight if I had an actual highlighter on mentorship, I think, that's one of the greatest shortcuts you can give yourself in business, finding the right mentor. I also believe that there are a lot of mentors out there that people think are not accessible and would not be up for mentoring them, wherever it might be. But that's actually not true because a lot of mentors, they're just not asked. People don't ask them to be mentors. And 
And also a lot of mentors need the mentee because they need them to impart knowledge and they also need them in a weird way to make amends and make good for mistakes they felt they made in the past through the vehicle of the mentee. So both sides need each other. So I encourage you to go find those mentors. Uh, yeah. So, so that, 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 that was huge. I will say that I got some great counsel from my friend on how to be a great mentee and me myself being a mentor these days, I see what makes a good mentee and what makes a poor mentee. And the number one quality for a great mentee is responsiveness, proactiveness, and showing that you're listening to what the mentor is saying. So to kind of transition into how we saved the business and, and we launched it and we started it, mm -hmm. one of my mentors brought to my attention that I have not physically face-to-face -face visited most of my clients in years. So I thought, oh, that's, that's true. So then what did I do? I got a bunch of moleskin notebooks. I call, I call this like the moleskin phase of my life. <laughs> and then over the course of three, four months, I went on the road, which was really tough because at that point I was married. We had our first few children and there were a lot of other life pressures at the same time. But I went on the road and I remember this particular mentor trying to get a hold of me and he couldn't get a hold of me. And then one day I picked up my phone and he said, where are you? And I said, I'm in Norman, Oklahoma. And he said, what are you doing in Norman, Oklahoma? I said, I'm visiting a customer. And I said, I said, this is like visit 200. He said, what? I said, you told me I have not visited any customers in a long time. So I'm trying to visit every single customer. <laughs> and he said, what are you doing at the customers? And I said, I'm trying, I'm asking them how I can make the product truly great. And I'm also asking them what's going to what's going to, what kind of service do we have to give you? So we're the most unforgettable vendor you've ever had. Right. And I'm writing down all those ideas so that all those ideas became the blueprint to save uh, the business and actually make it flourish. Did it, when you were hearing feedback from the customers, cause I think there's, you, you bring, there's a couple of um, things I want to highlight is one is that you're paying attention to bringing value to the customer. So you're truly listening to the things that they need at any point when you were hearing things, Saad, did it not align with your personal mission? No, it, it was all it was all in line because I mean it was all within essentially how to make healthcare better, right? Um, if 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 anything, there was a lot of bruising to my ego because I realized how poor our product had become, how complacent it had become. And, and the fact that the clients were not at that time getting as much value as I thought from my office that they were, they were getting. It, was, it wasn't until I was in the hospital walking around with nurses, seeing how they're using it and not using it, that I realized that, oh my gosh, this needs to be way, way, way better. So then what was the feedback that you heard and what were the things in the business that you did to make it flourish? Uh, there, there are so many technical things, right? So, so back then, you remember, this is, this is years ago. So one of the big things that clients needed is they were all using Microsoft Office to edit and update their documents. There was no Google Docs at that time or anything like that. And they wanted a cloud-based version of editing documents. They want to be able to edit the document in the, in the software collaboratively from any location. Yet being healthcare, especially U.S. healthcare, they wanted it done in a way that was highly secure and wasn't in the cloud, right? So this is 
it was a it was a big it was it was a big predicament. But but when I came back, the first phase of reinvention for the company was rebuilding the product. I realized that refactoring our existing code, adding edits, updates, bug fixes, none of that would work. I had to essentially throw the existing product in the garbage, so to speak, rebuild a brand new product and migrate everyone over to the new product. And I realized that I had to risk it and create the new product exclusively for this new thing back then called the cloud in this really weird new offering called AWS, right? So, so that was, that was, um, that's what we decided to do. And it was super risky because all of the clients told us that they will never get permission to go to the cloud. And I kind of, I saw that that's where the industry was going. And I thought to myself, there's no way they can avoid the cloud. They're going to have to do it. Mm-hmm. So when you were, when you're, because rebuilding a product and, and or switching business models are, is a risky thing for anybody. Cause I mean, especially when you are not sure about how the, you know, the clients um, and how well they're going to receive this uh, reinvention of the product. Did you have any, like, what was your level of understanding of business valuations at this point side? And the reason I bring that up is because you had mentioned that one of your mentors had sold a business. And one of the big observations that I've had over the years is most people have such a, a limited understanding for all the reasons that are, you know, I'm, I'm doing what I'm doing is of on valuation. So they don't know necessarily how to take those re like that investment of reinventing the business or building the business and to create value there, you know, there's, they're, they're, you know, especially today, they're talking about pre-seed rounds and they're, or they're talking about revenue, but they're not necessarily talking about what's the value of this business to create more choices aligned with the customer's needs. So I don't know, did you have any context? And if you didn't know, be good. I'm just curious on, you know, as you're building the strategic plan or, you know, solving the customer's problems, how that became a factor into it. Yeah. I, I had, my mentors gave me advice along the way of what would bolster the valuation of the company. Uh, and I never thought about things that way until they started to, to, to share with me. Right. And, and especially when I was going to Silicon Valley quite often, right? I started learning things like multi-tenancy. I started learning that the fact that I have all of the instances of, of our software installed physically inside of the server of all of our individual clients is disastrous, right? The other disastrous things we did over the years when it was a two-man company is whenever a client would ask us, hey, can you build this? We would say, sure. <laughs> and we'd build it just for that customer. And another customer would say, can you build that? Sure, we'll build it just for that customer. When it came time to migrate the customers, oh my, that was so, what a headache because we weren't, we were migrating to this singular new cloud-based multi-tenant new application. However, the migration scripts and everything else we had to write were like a hundred different ones because there were so many different versions of the product we had to migrate from. Um, we're, we're actually really, really lucky that we hadn't scaled too large. We're, we were only in the hundreds of clients at that point. If we were larger, we wouldn't have made it. We would have just folded, bankrupted, and it wouldn't have happened uh, because we wouldn't have been able to migrate everybody. And then the other thing that a lot of people don't realize when you're doing a technical migration like this and rebuilding a product and moving clients over, there's the technical migration but there's also the contractual and financial migration as well. 
Um, so the thing that for my mentors didn't line up, they're like, okay, well, you have a few hundred clients. I remember weeks of this. And they're like, but why is the company only making this small amount of money? Until they realized that we were still operating on an old software licensing model, which used to be, I think they used to be called a perpetual model, which was you would sell your software, you would get a large upfront chunk of money in the first year. Then year two onwards, you would get a really small percentage that's called a maintenance fee. And mm -hmm. that was it. Whereas the current subscription model is maybe not as large as that large chunk, but a little bit less, but the same amount of money repeatable every single year in terms of your ARR. So we were not only doing technical migrations, we were doing contract migrations. So we were going to our customers and saying, oh, by the way, here's this new product. Thank you very much. Yeah, by the way, it's not in your hospital anymore. It's in this cloud. I know you don't really like it. And also, I'm going to need you to resign a new contract. And, and we're going to need to triple what you pay us. <laughs> so that, that, all, all, of that, all of that was part of that, that, that migration process. So what was the, as you're doing this, I'm assuming you're probably selling some sort of bigger vision and value of what the new business is going to be like. So, you know, talk about how you scale this. So as you have a new technical platform and the new pricing model, which by the way, you know, our old family business, you know, we, we uh, not only did all the office equipment and print and manage IT, but it was software document uh, document management. Same thing where we were a resource, we'd be selling huge chunks, but then it was like 10% of the project was maintenance fees. And you just... Getting out, getting, out of that maintenance, getting out of that miserable hamster where we're like, okay, well, we need the half a million in revenue for this division or whatever it would be. But how do we all of a sudden go to $1,000 monthly contracts? We would go broke financially. <laughs> so it's like this like yeah. hamster wheel, which is why I brought up the, you know, hopefully you understand that you're growing value because it makes the pain of what you went through worth it when you know why you're doing it. Yeah, so I would be, I became very evangelical with the, with the clients, letting them know that, look, here's where we're going. Here's our product roadmap, right? Um, at that time, competition, because you, you, know, you, you mentioned document management, generic companies like Dropbox, Box.net, right? Like cloud storage companies started to creep up. So other parts of the hospital started using Dropbox and Box, but they all of a sudden became a competitor and I started to see that, you know what? We need to go deep, really, really deep into healthcare in terms of our functionality. We need to innovate in a way that it would not make any sense for a generic cloud storage document management company to, to, to actually innovate. So we came up with that product roadmap, right? And we, I went to the customers and I sold them on the product roadmap. I also sold them on the reality that, look, Here's the small amount of money you're paying us every year. In order for us to remember, I asked you when I saw you, this is what would make us a stellar vendor to deal with. That's going to cost me a bit of money to do that every year. And I can't do it off of this little amount of money that you pay me. I need more. Like I literally, those are the words, types of words I use to them. And, and I said, I said, I encourage you to go out, go call your IT department and find out for comparable type products, what they're paying. Right. And and all of them realized after a while that we were grandfathering them into different pricing. And they realized that even with the increased price, they were still getting a deal. 
So there's um, this is connecting some dots from the presentation I saw on Rhodium is uh, so you, as you're going deep into healthcare and you're getting the you know solutions and really solve, solving the jobs that, jobs that need to be done by the customers. How did you then use that and accelerate your sales and your customer acquisition? I mean, was it self-reinforcing? I mean, I, I can only imagine that as you become more of an expert, selling becomes easier. But I know you did some very unique things as it relates to becoming the industry expert. Yeah, yeah great, great question. So, so step one was the, really that product reinvention. Step two, because we were an existing business, we weren't um, a brand new business. I realized that we have clients, we didn't have fans. And that became apparent because sales team came to me and they said, out of the hundreds and hundreds of clients we had at that time, there were only three that were referenceable and they were getting tired of being used as references. And I thought to myself, why aren't the others referenceable? Ah, because they're not fans. So that was the next step of our journey. How do we put the systems and processes in place and the discipline in place on a daily basis to start turning these clients into fans that would go to bat for the company. And we did so many different things. We had things like the daily five where every employee in sales, marketing, and client success, they would get served up on their screen every day, five different random clients to call. And they just had to call touch base. It was usually a call that went like, hey, hello, this is so-and-so. I'm calling from you know Policy Medical. I'm just calling to check in to see how you're doing. How's everything going with the product? They make some notes. By the way, we're going to be at this conference. By the way, there was an update that happened last week. You might really find this feature beneficial if you haven't used it yet. Right? It was so they had they had some notes um, to do the daily five, but little actions like that consistently, all of a sudden, we started to differentiate ourselves from other vendors out there. And that's really what started to turn those clients in into fans. And you know, the end result was, you know, a year or two later, those clients were so passionate about their our brand, they would be the ones competing with each other in a gamified portal we had for the clients to see who would get chosen by us to create a webinar and deliver a webinar for us, who would get to write a white paper for us. Who would get to co-speak with an executive from our company at a conference, right? So all of these things are priceless for vendors, right? In terms of tools to be able to leverage for 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 sales and and and, and revenue generation. So that was that was the next step, uh, which is client success and turning uh, clients into fans. And then the final step really was creating that revenue generation engine, and that came from me realizing that what I did in the early days which was cold calling and outbound sales, that wasn't as much of an emphasis anymore. Everything had kind of changed and switched to inbound content marketing. So I actually went on this whole project of, I called it becoming the Wikipedia of our space, where I wanted our website to be the Wikipedia for our sector. So even if you were a a client to our competitors, you would still want to come to our website to get knowledge in terms of how to use our type of, of, of application. And then we did so many things. I mean, we even started a certification process where we would certify people in terms of using our type of, of software. And I say type, meaning it could be ours, could be our competitors, but we have the certification process. 
So you had, um, I think it was in the presentation I said, but you talked about like, should we do this? And, you know, do we need a permission to do this? But then you realize, cause like if someone's listening in and they're going, cause like it, they, they could say, well, in our industry, in our sector, we don't have a certification process and why me? Right. And I, and like, why are we the ones that should create all this content? I mean, what was your, uh, you know, did you ever deal with any kind of those, um, you know, confidence issues with you and your team or like, how did, like, how did those, and then what, like, how did that excel you to that, um, the top spot in your industry? You know, I would, I, I would say I never thought that way. Right. I, I'm, I, I would venture to guess that most people would say, why me? Are there any barriers? I instinctively think, why not me? If it's going to be someone, why not me? Right. Um, there are no barriers. It's just effort and energy and work to create this. And by the way, it's not that hard. So, and I thought, you know, and there were people internally that said, no, you can't do it. There's got to be some kind of like formal way to get recognized to be able to provide a certification. And I said, if you find what that is, find out what that is, you let me know. But in the meantime, we're creating this thing. And, and that's, and that's, that's what it was. So um, I'm curious, Saad is like, you know, cause my old business, you know, we had 20 sales reps and the cost of the sales reps. And like, there's this whole pricing model of like how to, you know, the revenue generation, uh, the, the revenue engine that you had talked about. How did that shift in like, cause you know, you were creating content, right? And like, how does that model, like, and I don't know if you had priced out like customer acquisition costs and then how that helped retain your customers. I'm just curious, like how that might've helped you justify spending on the content. Because like, I think, you know, you were way ahead of the curve from what I, what I know is I, you know, nowadays, you know, people over the last decade have been writing, you know, just essentially BS blogs or like, you know, just kind of fluffy content versus now people are yearning for real legit information that costs money, right? You can't just be having, you know, some Joe Schmo writing stuff that is, you know, you know, just tricking Google. You want to be able to do this for the customers. So like, do yes. you, you follow yes. what I'm saying here? <laughs> Yeah, no, it, it it does cost money. I think some decisions we made allowed us to operate very, very efficiently, um, which freed up capital to spend on this type of stuff. So one example of that would be when we re-engineered the product, the guy that was in charge, he was he was one of the mentors actually that that became part of the company. Um, and for me, when you start exchanging uh, money or shares or anything else like that, the mentor-mentee relationship evaporates and you, you essentially become partners. So when he became a, a part of the company, uh, he insisted based on his previous journey that we spent extra time setting up this admin console, this area uh, that the clients would never see for the product. And I was really upset with this because it was like, we went like six to nine months over uh, what we're supposed to do for, for the release date. But thank God we did that because what he ended up building, and he based it on his previous tech journey, was this area that any non-technical employee within our company could provision and set up a new customer easily. And because he's back then, uh, uh, you know, there might a tech company might be selling a lot, but all of a sudden there's a huge backlog of provisioning, which means setting up the instance for the client to actually use the thing, right? And for you to start recognizing revenue and invoicing and everything else. But the fact that it would take us literally 60 seconds to set somebody up because we spent the extra six to nine months engineering that area of the product. 
allowed us to be extremely lean in the client success area. Uh, now with with the content, we were I was vicious in terms of what we would accept as educational content. Our, some, and we did pay. We, you know, in terms of hiring writers that would take our ideas and take our expertise and collaborate with our clients to create things that were really, really useful. Some of our content was so useful and educational that some of the hospitals partnered with us to make the content into uh, continuing education credits for any hospital employee in the US. That, that's huge because now you can do a webinar presenting that content and you'd go from having tens of people attend a webinar to, to hundreds or even thousands of people attending it because they can use that credit towards a certification. And, and I just think, my gosh, the, the flywheel that you created by getting your customers to partner with you so they can train their own people and they're getting more bought into what you supply because they're partnering. I mean, like it just, I mean, the, 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 I mean, I can only imagine how much it got easier every single time you went around that flywheel. What did that do for the growth of the business? It was, it was insane because it just bringing our customers along as advocates to help us that legitimized um, and made the sales process so much faster and so much easier. Um, you know, for example, if I go and I spoke at an industry conference, that's good. But if I'm on stage with a customer, that's great. And if I say that customer is hanging out in our booth afterwards, that's even better, right? Because the amount of quality of leads that come from that is insane. Um, the same, you know, if I present a webinar on some industry topic and do a webinar, but it's really a sales demonstration of my tool, that's BS. But if <laughs> my customer presents on an industry specific topic and they're the only presenter and they, by the way, casually mention that they use this product for like a couple seconds, that's, that's exponentially much more powerful, Right. So like understanding the nuance of how to do that is really what, in, that, that's what leads to that exponential, uh, exponential revenue growth. All right. So given the fact that we got a, just a short amount of time, what, I, what I'm curious about, Saad, is, you know, as this growth happens, you had mentioned on the last show that you had created and engineered this life that you really liked. And so what, I'm, what I want to spend the, the remaining time on is, as you're growing, as the, as you've got this successful business, how did you understand when it was time? What was a triggering event? And then given the fact that you had this great life and this great product and company that was making an impact, what led you to sell versus exploring other options? And then, you know, how did you keep the impact that you wanted for the customers in line with the um, potential buyers as well as your personal why. So you just kind of, you can just start whatever, whatever direction you want. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I would say I was ready. If I'm honest, I was ready to sell the company about three years before I actually did. Um, and the reason I hung on and hung out for an additional three years before I sold the company was that I acknowledge that two things. I acknowledge that there were some things that had to be done in order to maximize the valuation for myself and everyone else involved. 
Um, the other thing I have to acknowledge is that it would take a tremendous amount of willpower to do that because I want it to be gone right there and then. Um, and the reason I want it to be gone is because at that point, it was about 15 years for me running that company and being part of that. So at that point, I felt like I had done everything I had set out to do for that particular company. And it wasn't, it wasn't as exciting and interesting for me after 15 years as, as it used to be. So that, and, and I mean, I'm just being honest. And I, and I thought, you know what, it, this needs to be run by a different CEO. Uh, and so I came up with a plan A and a plan B. Plan A was do the things I need to do to get the valuation to where I think it needs to be and go and find the ideal new home for the business. And I want it to be out completely from it. And my goal, my barometer is, is this going to be a good home? And because I plan to be the biggest cheerleader for the company after I'm gone and I have nothing to do with it. Um, so that's what I look for. If I couldn't find a new home in the sale of an, in, in, the, in the form of an acquisition, my plan B was hiring a CEO that would replace me and I would move into sort of a, you know, continuing on as a chair of the board. Uh, position. Super interesting how you broke this out because what I say in, in uh, a lot of our education side is that you can exit your role, which is your, your management, all the duties that you have separately and in different timelines than your ownership and your equity. I mean, they're completely different. Most people all, always bucket them into one, but you can do them differently. So like as you're going through maybe in the two different buckets, what are the things over those three years that you did to boost valuation? And then what are the, and then, and then we can, once we're, once you're done with that, we can take, take uh, your second part of that, which is how you, how you found the new home. Yeah. So, so I was, the reason I came up with two, three years, by the way, it wasn't, it was very intentional. The two, three years I, I stayed there because I kept on getting offers for the business and I kept on getting asked what my number is. And it's very difficult for me personally to think in terms of a monetary dollar. Like I, my, my brain and my heart, it's, it's just not wired in that way. But one of my good friends who was an investment banker, he said, what if the number wasn't a dollar figure? What if the number was a date? So I said, that's interesting. So then I came up with a date. My date was August 1st, 2018. Right. And this was in like 2015 ish, 2016 around there. That that's where I came up with that date, and I came up with an affirm. Well, <laughs> Go ahead. Well, I was gonna say as you're about to uh, say that was that date exiting the ownership for money, or was it exiting your role and handing it to someone else? I mean, or was it both? Either one, whichever one ended up it ended up being. Like I wanted to be out of the company, either as an acquisition, either through Plan A or Plan B. Okay. Uh, so, so I just came. I came up with this affirmation. And I said it every day in the morning. I said it every day in the evening, right? And I just said it and said it and said it. And I just focused on, I focused on that. Now, to answer your other question, um, some of the things that we did to grow the company up because it needed some growing up beyond how I was running it. So things such as uh, moving to audited financial statements, Right, I knew I needed a good track record of at least three years for that to make the due diligence process go uh, 
uh, as smoothly as possible. All this, by the way, I'm getting from, from from my mentors. Like I don't I don't know any of this stuff. There, I'm just learning, uh, le- learning it by asking people. Uh, the other thing we didn't do was regular, proper board meetings. We would have a board meeting every so often. It wasn't. I mean, I don't even know why we had board meetings before then. But then we started a regular cadence of monthly board meetings, run in the proper way with minutes and it being filed away. We adopted uh, Google's OKRs, objectives and key results. That's That started to give me scorecards and much more data to run the business on. And then the last thing that was really fundamentally important was I realized that I was still running the company as an entrepreneur and not as a CEO. Uh, even though my title said CEO, my card or whatever, but I, and my actions were still running it as an entrepreneur. And there is actually a difference. I was going to say, and what's I, the difference? <laughs> I, well, entrepreneur is more sort of like freewheel, gut feel, kind of going based on the latest conference, podcast, book, she or he reads and kind of goes with that, right? And a CEO is more measured, careful, data-driven. If they're going to do something, it's studied a little bit more, and it's it's and and you're doing something that is that is tried, true, and tested. So that's that's kind of the difference. And I kind of I kind of visualized that I was there was a bridge. I'm on one side of the bridge, and I'm an entrepreneur. And I gave myself uh, one year to cross that bridge and arrive the, at the other side of the CEO, uh, still as an entrepreneur, but now as a CEO as well. So when you were doing this over the couple of years, did you have an idea like what the value of the business was where you started? And then were you measuring these investments as you're going about, you know, getting the business ready and doing these different things? Not really. I mean, I was, I was measuring, I was measuring the revenue because I knew from, you know, from, from the industry that the, if there is an acquisition, it would be based on a multiple of revenue. Um, so that, that was the, yeah, that, that was a big focus. It wasn't a multiple of EBITDA. I knew that that's not what was going on in the industry at that time, be a multiple of revenue. So it was all centered around what can we do to exponentially grow revenue? So we explored everything from acquisitions to, we built new products, uh, to upsell, coming up with the whole upsell methodology to actually make that happen. Uh, it was all very product focused. I was very, very weary of creating too many revenue lines around professional services because I knew the valuation would not be as coveted as as product recurring revenue. Um, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, that makes a ton of sense. Um, completely agree with that. As you're, as you were then, tell us a little bit about the triggering event. And when you decided to take it to market, did you use an investment banker? And then how did you use, like, what decision-making process did you go through to pick the new home? Great, great question. So I didn't know a whole lot about how the process was run, other than anecdotally from people close to me. So the first thing I was told is I needed an investment banker. Um, The big problem I had is I didn't know what an investment banker did. (laughs) Um, You know... I was like um, Kramer in a Seinfeld episode where he kept on, um, if anyone's watched that show and seen this episode where Kramer walks around the episode telling Jerry Seinfeld that this is a write-off and that's a write-off. 
And at the end of the episode, Jerry tells him, he goes, you don't even know what a write-off means. And Kramer admits he doesn't know what it means. That was me with investment banker. I had a lot of friends of friends that were investment bankers. They all seem really wealthy, but I didn't know what they did. I found out what they did. And, you know, what somebody broke it down to me as is, hey, they're pretty much a real estate broker for your business. I said, oh, okay. So then I got really specific. I came up with the criteria for the investment banker and it came down to two firms slash two guys. I wanted somebody that had done a bunch of deals in healthcare, software specifically, a good portion of regulatory compliance deals, and somebody that was licensed on both the US side of the border and the Canadian side, because I'm, I'm, I was a Canadian company Right. Um, so I needed, I, I just felt more comfortable having an American investment banker that had already sold Canadian businesses to US acquirers. Mm-hmm. So then, as they go through this process, and I know because we got, we're running short on time here, is I'm just curious, like, you know, did, I'm assuming they, because it was an investment banker and not a broker based on your size, the, when they're bringing options that are bringing options to your table, I, was it, combination of private equity and strategic and then how did you pick the person and and how did you decide that your your personal why and the business's um core values were aligned with this uh new home yeah i mean in terms of the list of acquirers there were quite a few on that list it was more private equity companies strategics that were actually private equity backed right and there were a small amount of strategics on, on, on the list as well, but a lot of PE money. Um, in, in, in fact, the top bidders for the company were the people that were reaching out to me and that were talking to me um, for a good year before I even brought in the investment banker. So did the investment banker bring new leads? No, not at all. However, he brought such great value. Uh, in terms of the negotiation process, uh, because he's he had dealt with these people before and everything else, so so that that was really that was really his his value and the makeup of the people on, on the actual list. Um, so when you talk about the, the the negotiation parts, were there what were some of the hangups? What would you know if you're thinking if someone's listening and you know we've talked a lot on the show a lot about uh, and not just on yours but on my old, other episodes of all the deal structures and all the different parts of this. But like in your situation, were there things that you had learned or ahas or things that you want to relay to the listeners that they got to be paying attention to? You know what I I'd say one one thing. I think it's know who you are. Because for me, at the end of it all, for those of you that don't know the greater Toronto area, there's a little suburb called Scarborough. Scarborough, actually lots of people are from Scarborough. The Weekend, Mike Myers, like lots of people are from Scarborough. Um, but it's also the hood, right? It's, it's a lower income, rougher area. So at the end of the day, I'm a kid from Scarborough. So mm. what I ended up doing was I wrote on a little piece of paper my deal makers and breakers, three criteria, one, two, three, and I put it in my wallet. And whenever pressure would come from my team of the investment banker, tax accountants, lawyers, blah, 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 and the other side, I would pull out my paper, look at it, and I would tell whoever on the conference call or in person, I said, look, I'm just a kid from Scarborough. I know you're telling me 
this is not the norm. This is never done in the industry, but I'm not doing a deal unless I get these three things here. One, two, and three. Mm -hmm. And many times they ask me, well, what are you going to do if you don't get it? I said, I'm just going to put my pencil down. We stop this process. I continue running my business. And I was dead serious about that. And my first criteria was all cash, no hold back, no escrow, nothing, all cash. Second is fast transition. I wanted to be out in six months. And the third was they have to take my Brazilians. My entire engineering team almost was from Brazil. And that's a long story for another day in terms of how that happened. But, but these guys, they didn't just fly from Brazil to do some engineering. They uprooted their lives, left the bad situation, flew to Canada, were on the path to becoming citizens, all this stuff, right? Brought their spouses and everything else. But a lot of the acquirers, they started making comments earlier that, uh, you know, there are a lot of synergies with our engineering team over here. You know, we can just get rid of that engineering team. That meant that these guys would get deported. Um, so part of my deal was you have to honor the immigration process. We already started. You got to take the Brazilians. Um, and whenever any of those things would be questioned, um, I, that's where I'd be like, okay, I think, I think we're done here. Um, and you know what? I got, I got criteria number one. Criteria number two, I didn't get within six months. I was out in 30 days. Wow. And criteria number three, um, they, they kept the Brazilians. And in fact, you know, it's been now two and a half years or something since the acquisition. Some of the Brazilians are still there. So I want to respect your time so we can wrap up here. You know, if you're thinking about, you know, it's been two and a half years and I just, when you reflect on this side, what is the, do you have any regrets? Do you, would you have done things differently? If you're going back, you know, four years talking to yourself, what would it, what advice would you give yourself to make today make more sense? I think, I think maybe to, and I didn't do this and, and I should have done it more often, step back from the business, ask myself, if I were to own my exit, if I were to exit before an exit, What's the criteria? What criteria do I need? Because if I had asked myself something like that, I would have realized that I had most of the things that I needed already before the exit. That, that would have actually provided more, more happiness during, during that time. And the other, the other regret I would say that, um, that, that I should have done differently was to listen to my spouse uh, more often because um, you know, for those of you that have a significant other that's not part of your business, just because they're not at the boardroom table, that doesn't mean they're not one of the best advisors that you could possibly have. Because she told me all sorts of things over the years that I didn't listen to. But, um, you know, when some high-priced consultant or some coach or somebody would tell me the same thing, I'd be like, oh, yeah, I'm going to do that. That's great. Thank you. Right? But I, I think it was... It was listening to her more. And, and also for me in my personal situation, having a family, being married, having kids, realizing that there's a tremendous amount of effort that happens outside of your business to make you a success from other people like your spouse that goes unrecognized. So I, I you know, the, you know, I, I kind of leave it, leave it there. I think it's a great, great uh, piece of advice. Well, I, I know we're, we're uh, done. We could probably keep going, man. I, I, I enjoy this so much. Um, 
you know, the last two questions, just uh, to make sure we put a wrapper on this is what does the word intentional mean for you? Intentional. I think it means taking the time to listen to your own voice, because that is the signpost of where you need to be going. And then the last question is, what are you doing today? What can the audience do to reach out to you and help you or cheer you on? Uh, these days, I'm doing two things. One, I'm gearing up to start a new tech company. And in the area of tech, I'm also you know, coaching, mentoring a bunch of tech entrepreneurs. And, and I'm writing quite a bit based on my experience. So if uh, anyone has any ideas based on things I may have said in this interview that you'd love for me to write more about, uh, I'd love to hear from you. I mean, you can, you can find me on my website, which is www.sodjuman.io. And on LinkedIn, I'm there as at, at Sodjuman. Saad, thank you so much for two different hours, a little over that. I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate uh, both parts of the story, man. Thanks for coming on. Ryan, thank you so much. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed that episode. And if there was one big takeaway, I want you to soak in, digest, and truly understand knowing who you are, what you want from the business, and why is crucial to be intentional. You have so many people on the show that have given their definition of intentional. And the only way to be intentional is to understand what it is that you're marching towards and why so you can reverse engineer into that plan and build it with purpose. It's super fun to talk about scaling businesses, revenue, customer acquisition, buying companies, selling companies. But if you don't know why you're doing that, none of it matters. I have too many people on the show that have sold their business, made tons of money and have no purpose because they didn't articulate this or they get an out of the blue offer and they don't know how to say yes or no the money looks good, but they don't know who they are, what they want from the business and why, so they don't know how to focus. They don't know how to make a decision on how much should I reinvest in the business versus pull out of the business because they don't know who they are and what they want and why. You can see this is a theme. If you want more clarity, go check out the Intentional Growth course. You can hire us to do some coaching calls along with you, or you can sign up for one of the virtual cohorts, which is a group format with one of our channel partners that might be coming up soon. So, Thank you so much for tuning in and I hope you have a wonderful day and I will see you next week.